We are actually finishing up our series this morning that we've been in all month of January called Destined. And in this series we've been talking about how God uses our serving together in the church to accomplish, accomplish His purposes in this world. It's actually quite a remarkable thing to think about being a part of God's plans, His destiny, and that his, our destiny becomes woven in as part of His destiny for, for all of creation. And so as we jump in today, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles, pull them out. If you didn't bring one, pull one out of the pew rack in front of you. We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Pew Bibles, page 948. As you turn there, let me just say a few words about Ephesians. Ephesians simply a letter that Paul writes to a young local church in the city of Ephesus. And Paul has a lot to say to these young believers. He, he writes this letter um, to them with a lot of passion and a lot of fervor. He speaks graphically and forcefully because he, he so desperately longs for them to understand the power of God and the might of God and the authority of Jesus and what God has done for them in Christ. He writes things like this. Just listen to these words. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. What he's saying is, he's saying, don't miss this. Don't miss out on, on grasping and understanding what God has done for you and, and letting that reality of His power and love and grace in your life change you and transform you and direct your life. In Ephesians 2, he says, because you were, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. But because of His great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And then he goes on to say this in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, Paul longs for them to know. God wants us to never forget that what he has done can never be earned. It's given freely and there's nothing you can do to deserve it, but you can respond to it. The grace and love and mercy and forgiveness of God, there's nothing you can do to deserve it, but you can respond to it. You can live a life fueled, empowered, motivated, driven by the grace you have received. And in doing so, you can embrace the destiny of our calling. The calling God has for us, his bride, his church. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is kind of this turning point in the book where Paul has been talking about the love and grace and the power and what God has done. And now he will turn to our response. How we will live in light of this amazing reality. Here's what he says, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Do you hear the longing in Paul's voice here? Do you hear how passionate he is? As he says, in response to the great, amazing, redemptive work that God has done, live a life that's worthy? Remember the, the, the film Saving Private Ryan? I, I think just a wonderful film. It's a World War II story of a young, a young private who's off 
um, on the front lines in World War II. He happens to have a number of brothers who were all killed in the war. And so when word gets back to, to command, they decide that it's just not right for one family, for one set of parents, for one mother to lose all of her sons, and he's the only one left, and he's out there. And so they send this, this platoon of soldiers, this captain and some men, out to, to, re, to retrieve Private Ryan and bring him back, bring him back to safety, bring him back to his parents, bring him back to his mother. And, and they're successful. They, they're successful in rescuing him, but it's not without a cost. A number of men in the platoon die, including the captain, who at the very end loses his life to rescue this young man. And the very best part of the film, in my opinion, is, is the end when all of a sudden you, you flash forward to the end of this guy's life. He's, he's an old man now and he's at the graveside of this captain who years and years earlier had, had given his life that he might be saved, that he might be rescued. And he's there with his wife and his kids and his grandchildren and he's thinking about all the years and all the life and all the things he's been able to do because this man gave his life for him. And he stands there at this man's headstone and he looks at his wife and with tears in his eyes he says, tell me I've led, led a good life. Tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. What he's asking his wife in this moment is, was my life a worthy response to what he gave? Because I can never earn it. I can never, it has already given to me. I've already received it. Now my only choice is to respond to it. Tell me that I responded in a way that was worthy. That word worthy, it's the same word Paul uses in Ephesians 4.1. It's the Greek word axios. Pastor Matt and I were talking this week about how this is a, a word that's used to describe scales in, in the marketplace. And the question was, um, does what is on this side of the scales get balanced out by what's on this side of the scales? Is this payment worthy of what has been already given here? And in this passage, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is asking, what is a measured response to the restoration and redemption of your life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What is worthy of what God has done for you? What kind of life would emulate, would reflect, would, would, would balance that out, would be appropriate considering who, who God is and what he's done? What does a life on the other side of receiving the salvation of Jesus look like? And here's what he says. Verse 2, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Skip down to verse 11 with me. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I want to start here in verse 11. In verse 11, Paul talks about 
some specific people, some certain people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And some scholars believe that this is a list of offices, offices in the church, positions that people would hold. Others believe this is simply a list of of certain gifts that people have, just gifts and abilities that the Spirit has given certain people. I tend to see some of, of both in there, but I don't want to get into that today. What I want to say this morning is simply that there are a group of people that have been given the calling by Christ himself, so important, so essential to the life in the church, that Christ himself says, do this. He says, equip my people, the church, for works of service. Now, that word equip is an interesting word in Greek. It it was used to describe a surgery, a surgery in which a bone, a broken bone, was set back into place. Or, or a surgery where a dislocated joint would be sort of shoved back in to the socket. In politics, this word equip would be used to describe the bringing together of opposite factions, people who have strong disagreements, and, and setting those relationships um, right once more. In, in other places in the New Testament, this word equip is used to describe the mending of a fisherman's nets. So the basic idea of equipping, what it means to equip is putting a thing or person into the condition in which they ought to be. Finding just the right fit, putting it right back exactly where it goes, setting them in just the right place. Now, here's the question. Why? Why is this idea of people serving in just the right place, in just the right way, so important that Paul would declare it as one of the central ways we should respond to the grace of God in our lives. I mean, is serving really that huge? Is it really that big? We don't seem to think so, most of us, I don't think. And yet for Paul, in light of all that God has done, he says, now, do everything you need to do to make sure people are serving together in just the right place for them. That's your response to the good news. That's your response to the gospel. That's living a calling worthy of what you have received. And so what is it that makes serving so significant? Why? Why such emphasis here? Well, I offer you three things this morning um, from this chapter. First one is this. Serving is so significant because serving is linked to unity. Unity and serving are always in the scriptures inexplicitly linked. Go back to the beginning of this chapter with me, if you will. Ephesians chapter 4, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, someone who's like enslaved by the goodness and grace and power and love of God, just captured by it. That's an amazing phrase in itself, but we'll keep going. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Now verse 3. Make every effort, listen to the language here from Paul, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? Remember what it is that unites you. Remember the enormity and centrality and utter importance of the things you have in common. Things like the Holy Spirit. Things like the Lord, that's Jesus Christ himself. Things like God the Father of all. Baptism into Christ's death and resurrection. Do you see, 
Paul's saying, you may have lots of things that are different about you. There may be things that, that, that are different about you and you that divide you, that want to divide you, but remember at the center what unites you, what you come together around. Remember how important it is. Tim Keller says this, Paul is telling us that we have been baptized into the Trinity, the most united being we can possibly imagine. And so for us to live in disunity is utterly incomprehensible when we're confronted with this truth. It's almost, friends, it's almost as if God was looking down the corridors of time as this passage is written and seeing all the silly things, just seeing all the silly things over the generations that sometimes divide and cause rifts in the church. And it's sort of like in this passage he's saying, seriously? Seriously? You're going to divide over that? You're going to get upset over that? You're going to let, you know, division happen over that? Don't you know? Don't you remember what it is that brings you together? At this point, friends, I was tempted, actually, to to give some examples here of all the things that we sometimes argue about and, and are tempted to let divide us here at Cedar Mill. Just start listing them off. Here are the things that that enemy would love to use in our church and sometimes even tries to divide us and separate us here. And then I was going to list them all out and then I was going to say, how do they compare to the oneness of the Trinity? The Father, Son, and Spirit and baptism into Christ. But I thought, you know, that's a little heavy-handed, Tashera, to really just lay that on people that way because you know what? You do the same thing. And so instead of just giving you the the list, I want to ask you the question and I'll ask it of myself as well. What is it that you were tempted... To let create disunity in your spirit. What is it that you're tempted to just let in and create division in the midst of a community united around the triune God? What are the things that might divide and disconnect you from our church? Just give a little perspective today. The message of this passage, the message of Paul here is fight. Not with each other, But fight for unity in the church. Fight for unity in your midst. And then down in verse 13, Paul tells us what to fight with. He says, here is what will build unity amongst you. Serving together as the church. Not serving together in the church. This is not about location. This is about serving together as the church. As the people of God come together to follow him and advance his mission in this world. That will build unity in your midst. Finding just that right place so that bone goes right in the right spot where you can use your gifts and abilities and passions and experiences in ministry with other Christ followers to advance the kingdom of God. Now, I want to just warn us here because we need to be careful. There are a lot of churches that don't have a culture of serving and they think, they believe they have this unity that Paul talks about. But in all honesty, I think so many times churches settle for something less than than true, biblical, Paul-exhorted unity. And I think there are two ways we can err. We can err on one side or the other. The first place we can err is we sometimes settle for tolerance instead of unity. We settle for tolerance and we call it unity because tolerance can look a lot like unity and sometimes it can even feel like unity. But unlike unity, which, which values and appreciates and depends on our differences, tolerance just puts up with differences. Tolerance just, just tolerates 
differences, but it doesn't truly value them. And serving, this is why serving and tolerance don't really go together. They don't really mix because it's actually easier for me to tolerate you if we just keep our distance. But if we're forced to come together and partner and use our gifts in ministry to advance some common purpose, the purposes of God in this world, now all of a sudden, your differences, they start to get real close to me and they start to bug me and, and they start to irritate me and it's hard for me to just tolerate. Tolerance always wants distance relationally. Tolerance will let us be different but not relationally dependent on one another. Tolerance will keep us from truly being a team. Then on the other side of the spectrum from tolerant cultures, there are churches that substitute unity for for consensus. We've all seen churches like this. We've been in churches perhaps that are like this. Um, Churches where how you act and what you believe and the things you do and how you express your faith, they are all very narrowly defined. In other words, churches like this will say, we have unity. Just look. We all think and dress and act the same. We're together. But friends, that is not the kind of unity Paul describes here or elsewhere in the New Testament. He says, no, the goal is not to minimize your differences. The goal at the very core of biblical unity is actually this idea that we want to leverage our differences for kingdom effectiveness. You see, unity says, I don't just engage you and serve with you because we agree on things and have a similar approach. Unity says it is actually our differences that I depend on to successfully accomplish our mission of being the church. You see, unity combines both dependence and diversity in a beautiful way. Let me give you an example of where I I see this happening all the time. I see it happening on mission trips. If you've ever been on a mission trip, like I'm talking about a trip where you have to drive, you know, a to a certain place, a place outside your comfort zone, a place you wouldn't, cert- you wouldn't usually go. Sometimes you even get on an airplane to do it. It means you're spending extended time with people to go and accomplish something for the kingdom of God together, some place that you're not used to being. Here's what happens on a mission trip. You spend a lot of time with people, and they start to bug you. They don't do things the way you want to do them. They have different ideas than you have. There's like... Sometimes it's really hard on a mission trip to decide like who's in charge and everyone's trying to do that whole Christian nice thing and so you don't want to step on anyone's toes and so instead of just saying what you want, you go along with what she wanted and that really frustrates you. So there's this whole dynamic on a mission trip where you're just trying to figure out how to work together and there's always a point in every mission trip where there's a little bit of a a semi-meltdown. I've never been on a mission trip before where there wasn't some sort of a relational breakdown at some point but here's what always happens. Because you have to, Because the mission is actually bigger than your frustration, you figure out how to leverage the people you're with's differences from you to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. There's always a point where you think, man, she's really been bugging me, but you know what? I'm really glad she's here because she did that. I could not have done that. And now I start to see why she's so valuable and not just someone I have to tolerate. Right? And you come back, you'll, you'll ne- your relationship will never ever be the same again if you go on a mission trip with someone. Those relationships are always different, they're always deeper. Those are the kind of people you see across the lobby and, and you go to check in. Mike Miles spent a week with me in a small room with four foster boys this last summer. And I may have frustrated him and he may not like me, but we're bonded and we've got some unity. You can ask him. He's got some stories, too. He's not in here for this hour, so I could say that. Is he? Oh, he is. There he is. 
And I got some stories on him too, but we'll just keep those for another sermon. Um, That's what happens, friends. When you serve together, you are building unity into the fabric of our church. It happens all the time. It doesn't just happen when you go away or go other places. It happens every Tuesday night at the Jesus table. It happens, it's happening right now as our children's staff works together to minister to our kids. It happens when our youth staff gathers. It happens when a Barnabas team rallies to support and encourage and care for a missionary. Unity gets built into the fabric of our church. Because when the mission gets big enough, When the mission gets important enough, unity is essential. And that's why Paul pounds it in over and over and over again. Serving is significant because it builds unity amongst God's people. That's point one. Point two. Here's the second reason serving is so significant. Serving is linked to knowing Jesus. Do you know what I find? This is just, I I was thinking about this this week quite a bit. And here's, here's, here's what I believe. Here's my experience anyway. Most Christians, most church people in America, and um, as a pastor I know lots, live at a comfortable distance from God. Most church-going American Christ followers live at a comfortable distance from God. They come to Christ, they give their lives to God, they have this hope, this dream, that they will find a deep, intimate connection with Him. Maybe it begins that way, but over time it does not play out, and they simply settle into this, for lack of a better term, acquaintance relationship. And they come every week, and they try to do some stuff, and they read their Bible, and they try to do other things, but ultimately when you ask them, they would say, my relationship with God is not what I want it to be. He just seems far. He just seems distant. We just have an acquaintance relationship. And that's not what God longs for. That's not what He wants in response to all that He's given and done for you and me. That's not what He wants for His church. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and end the knowledge of the Son of God. The Greek word for knowledge is the word gnosis. It's not the word Paul uses here. He chooses a different word. He uses the word epinosis. And we talked about this before. Epi is just the, the, the small Greek prefix that literally means superpower charged like take it up a notch go deeper farther this is like super gnosis epinosis literally means this from the dictionary from the the the, the greek dictionary to become thoroughly acquainted with to know well to know accurately with deep understanding you see that is what god wants for you that's what god wants for his church Not acquaintance relationship, epinosis. And he says that happens when as part of the body of Christ, we serve. How many things have you tried to get close to God? How many retreats? How many reading plans? And and there's other things that God uses to draw us into himself, but at the very core is this idea that we would be the church, that we would serve together. And he says, that's when you will start to truly know who I am. And friends, one of the reasons I think we miss this so often is that, is that we keep waiting for serving to be easy or convenient or comfortable. We just wait for that right moment where, man, it's just going to fit right into my schedule real nice and it's just going to be simple and slick. And some of you have found some of those places and it hasn't worked and some of you are still looking because one hasn't popped up yet. 
You know, one of the things we're trying to do around here, we're trying to, to be better about creating systems that make it easy and safe and comfortable and convenient for you to serve here. That's, on one level, our goal. On another level, that's not our goal at all. At least it shouldn't be. I have to tell you, my hope and prayer for you is that as you serve here at Cedar Mill, as you dive into serving as a part of this body, you would encounter struggle and challenge and difficulty and frustration and frequent feelings of being outside of your comfort zone. Because friends, here's the truth. Serving always starts with sacrifice. We want satisfaction. We want satisfaction from serving. And I believe God will give. God does give satisfaction from serving. You'll experience that. It's deep. It's full. It's rich. It doesn't always look like the satisfaction of the world, but it's awesome. But before you get to satisfaction, you'll always hit sacrifice. When we engage sacrificial service, that's when knowledge of the Son of God, epinosis, Thorough, well-known, deep understanding of Jesus begins to grow. Last point this morning. Serving is significant because serving is linked to maturity. Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. See, some of you think, like, what is this? What does the church being built up look like? Does it mean like the pews are more full? No, I mean, it's not bad. If the pews are more full, God certainly wants more people in his church living for him. But what it really means, maturity, or, or the church being built up, is that more Christ followers are growing into maturity. That's what the church being built up is all about. And there's something about serving together as the church that matures us. You know, I was reading one author this week, and um, he was saying... That we come to church, and when we do, we expect, we have this expectation, and you know what's funny about this is this is true for me. This is one of those moments I like, that's me. I have to change my thinking here. He says, we come to church, we expect that Christians will be mature. We have this underlying, Judy doesn't, but everyone, most people do. They come to church and they're like, well, if you're here, you're attending church, you're calling yourself a follower of Jesus. I mean, it's not just any church. This is a Cedar Mill Bible church. Like, the people in this room are going to be mature Christians, right? Certainly. Well, Friends, the Bible and Paul right here in this passage says this is a false assumption. You should not assume that. Christians can be immature because maturity is not a prerequisite to salvation. God doesn't come to us and say, hey, I'd love to have you as one of my kids. Died for you on the cross. Grace, salvation, freedom, all that stuff. All right here. But I need you to work on patience and kindness. A little more of that, Greg, and we can get you in. But you're almost to the maturity line. You know what I'm saying? You know, the elder board might take you, but God, he's on the edge. No, that's not how it works with God, is it? In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that when you become a follower of Christ, when you give your life to, to Jesus, you become a baby, an infant in the faith, a newborn believer. Another quote I read this week that I thought was awesome um, was, every church is filled with, spiritually speaking, poopy diapers. I just thought it was a fun image to just kind of think about as I look out at all of you guys. So, so there's immaturity amongst us. And Paul says that's, that's just normal and natural. Everyone has to be born. Everyone has to be a baby. But don't stop there. We all love babies, right? We proved it this morning. But at a certain point, chubby cheeks and poopy pants and temper tantrums when you don't get your way starts to get obnoxious. 
So the question is, how do you mature? By using your gifts to serve as part of the church. Friends, how that happens, how the church gets strong, how the church gets mature, how the church postures itself to advance God's mission and fulfill His will in this world, is when you get strong. When you flex and exercise your muscles of serving, you get built up. And when you get built up, the church gets built up because you are the church. Not me, not Dan, not this building. You. The only way we mature is when we mature. Do you want to mature in the Lord? Or do you just want to, re- to live the rest of your life in spiritual huggies? If you want to grow up, the Bible says, serve. And don't just volunteer. Don't just, you know, find a place to do something so you can check a box and say, I did it. People, that's not serving. That's not, that's not what's being talked about here. When we talk about serving, when the scriptures talk about serving in the church, they're talking about finding a ministry that you are passionate about. And let us help you figure out how to use your unique gifts and passions and experiences to join with us in advancing the kingdom. That's serving, having a ministry, being intentional, a high level of ownership. A lot of places want you to volunteer, but this isn't the why. And I love the why. I volunteer at the why. I coached a game yesterday. But we want more from you than the why. God wants more from you than the why. And so... Let me ask you these questions as we go this morning. Are you, this is kind of the, the final questions of our whole series here, are you serving in a way that is building unity in our church? Are you part of the, the unity building fabric that God is weaving together here at Cedar Mill Bible? Are you serving in a way that's helping you know Jesus? That's, that's weaving that epinosis sort of relationship into your heart and soul with your God. Are you serving in a way that is helping you grow up, that's maturing you? Are you serving in a way where you can look back and say, I'm more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, self-controlled this year than last year? Because of what I've poured out in serving. I urge you, church, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Live a life that looks at what God has done and says, I'm going to live out of that. I'm going to live in response to that. I want to reflect what God has done for me.